From WNYC New York Public Radio, this is the podcast of the Leonard Lopate Show, and I'm Leonard Lopate. This is just one segment of today's show. The rest of today's show is available for download and on-demand listening at WNYC.org. This podcast is made possible by WNYC and its listeners. Please help support this free service by becoming a member at WNYC.org. WNYC podcasts are supported by Holy Name Hospital in Teaneck, New Jersey, providing comprehensive centers in cardiovascular services, interventional radiology, and cancer care. More information at www.holyname.org. You're listening to The Leonard Lopate Show on AM820 and 93.9 WNYC. Bruce Bartlett is a highly respected economist and alumnus of the Reagan and George H.W. Bush Treasury Departments, and he's a self-proclaimed real conservative. He defines a real conservative as a defender of small government, supply-side economics, free trade, and federalism. And his new book from Doubleday, Imposter, How George W. Bush Bankrupted America and Betrayed the Reagan Legacy, got him fired from a conservative think tank and has left him on the outs with his party. But it has fueled a debate within the Republican Party and, I'm pleased to say, brought him to my show today. Hello. Happy to be here. While writing this book, you were working on the, at the National Center for Policy Analysis. What happened when you passed a draft of the book on to a colleague? Well, I, I, I gave a, a copy of the, the manuscript to my boss, a guy named John Goodman, uh, as soon as I wrote, or shortly after I gave it, it to the final draft to, to the publisher. And uh, for the next several weeks, I, I heard nothing uh, back. Uh, I don't know whether, I still don't know to this day whether he ever actually read the book. But uh, about, The title probably gave him an idea as well, where you were going. My, the trouble started when Amazon posted it uh, for, for advanced sale. And surprisingly, some people noticed it on the Amazon website almost immediately, and that seems to have triggered uh, some some kind of reaction. I still don't know exactly what happened. All I know is that I started getting nasty emails from his wife, who was the uh, Jeanette, who's the number two person in the organization. And uh, about a week later, I guess this was on about October 17, he called me with a rather terse uh, statement that. Uh, it was a business decision. I was costing them money in terms of lost contributions, and um, and and they were letting me go. And I'd been with them for ten years, so I asked, uh, "Well, are you going to give me any severance?" And he said, "No." And I said, "Well, if you don't, I'm going to go to the media about this." And he said, "Fine, go ahead." So I did. And the next day, there was a big article in the New York Times. <laughs> well, hadn't uh, they figured out where you were going if you'd been there for ten years? Yes, in fact, they had admonished me uh, previously for making critical comments about George Bush. Uh, they said, uh, you know, you need to stick to to the issues. And but the thing is, I don't remember them telling me this when Bill Clinton was in the <laughs> the White House. So it was a pure it was pure hypocrisy. It's you can you can attack the other side, but you can't attack your own side. And although there are. I'm sure many conservatives who agree with you, because this is because Democrats really can't take great pleasure from what you're saying. You, you, you're making a conservative argument. Uh, you, you say you haven't been pursued by other think tanks. No, uh, even personal friends of mine who run uh, various think tanks, so they've uh, declined the opportunity to request to add me to their. Uh, roles for various reasons, not just uh, because they're afraid of the White House, but I mean, I do say some things in the book <clears throat> that are contrary to currently received uh, Republican conservative orthodoxy, 
uh, principally in the tax area where I say uh, quite you know, clearly in two chapters that, that the fiscal course that, we're, that our nation is on, in, in part because of the things that George Bush has done, uh, is going to raise spending so enormously <clears throat> over the next decades that uh, that it's just unrealistic to think that we will be able to pay for all these benefits that have been promised without significantly raising taxes. And uh, for some reason, people just don't want to hear that. I don't, I don't know why. You celebrate many aspects of the Reagan administration in your book. As you repeatedly argue, Reagan is to conservatives what FDR is to liberals, the embodiment of all the best aspects of their ideals. So why do you criticize President George W. Bush for his deficit spending, but expect excuse Reagan's deficit spending, which really was quite runaway. Well, in retrospect, I should have explained that more when I when, when the part about the Reagan legacy got added to the title. I think I was just assuming that people kind of understood what I meant by that, and it's clear I should have explained that more. Uh, I mean, ch- just, to, just to deal specifically with Reagan, uh, he did, in fact, cut uh, d- domestic discretionary spending, uh, but he did increase defense spending. Uh, but the main reason why the deficits emerged, ironically, is because inflation came down so much more quickly than, than anybody expected. You lost the increase in revenue that you get automatically from inflation because people get pushed into higher tax brackets. So that actually had more to do with reducing federal revenues than the tax cut itself. And very few people remember now or want to remember that Reagan, after the first year, raised taxes quite significantly. And I detail this in the book as well. He raised taxes virtually every year of his presidency. And by the end of it, he had taken back in tax increases half of the 1981 tax cut. So I think he dealt responsibly with the the, the issues he had to deal with. And uh, we did get something in return for the money that was spent on defense. I mean, we did end the Cold War, and, and I think that was money well spent. Uh, but where, where this president is, is, th- is just throwing away money on nothing, really. I mean, we all know about all the pork barrel projects that, that he refuses to veto. And I think it's just appalling that the last president to serve in office as long as this one without a single veto was Thomas Jefferson. I mean, that's... Although it may happen now with the Dubai port matter, but uh, which is an odd yeah. thing to, to break that rule with. But it is interesting that you talk about him not vetoing the pork, but a number of people have called you to task for not being harder on Congress in this mm-hmm. regard. First of all, let me tell people who you are. Bruce Bartlett, his new book from Doubleday is called Imposter, How George W. Bush Bankrupted America and Betrayed the Reagan Legacy, a critique from the right, not from the left. Uh, so uh, why aren't you harder on Congress? Uh, after all, they push the, there are still people in Congress who are pushing for more tax cuts, mm-hmm. making them permanent. Uh, there are people in Congress who are pushing for all the things that you are critical yes. of George Bush mm-hmm. about. Well, one of the things about uh, in terms of comparing Bush to Reagan is that Reagan had to deal with a, a Democratic House of Representatives all eight years of his presidency, and the Democrats back in those days were a lot smarter and tougher than the ones they, that are in Congress today. I mean, uh, Tip O'Neill and George Mitchell uh, were hell of a lot more effective at representing the Democratic Party than I think Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid are. And so George Bush had an enormous opportunity in having Republican control of the House and Senate 
and has just totally squandered that opportunity, from my point of view, of course. And, and instead of using that as an opportunity to get control of some of these programs, he's just let them uh, uh, explode. And, uh, and the Medicare bill is, is the one that, that was most distressing to me personally. But, uh, but, I mean, he is the president. He is the leader. He's the leader not merely of the country but of the, of the party, of the Republican Party. And if he's not going to offer any leadership to his people in Congress and he's not going to discipline them through the veto, uh, you know, it's not un- unreasonable that, that, that they're going to get carried away and do what, what Congress and politicians do, which is buy o- elections. Why is the Medicare bill the most distressing to you? This is a, an odd situation mm-hmm. because it's very mm-hmm. distressing to people on the mm-hmm. left as well. Well, see, I, I was, I, of course, I was opposed to the the Medicare bill all along, but I, I, I didn't really focus because you on thought it. it was too expensive. Yeah, I, I mean, I think or that poorly planned, as others have suggested. That too. Uh, I mean, I think one can attack it on many different grounds. But see, I had convinced myself that these guys in the White House were so clever, you know, George, uh, Karl Rove as genius kind of thing, that I thought they were playing a clever game, okay, of trying to be for something that was politically popular, but but knowing that it would never actually get enacted because the House and the Senate would never agree upon something. And so it came as a real shock to me when that famous vote occurred, I believe it was on November 22nd, 2003, the famous three-hour vote in the middle of the night when the president was awakened and called people in twisted arms and all, all that sort of stuff that's detailed in the book. And also the, the, the estimates of the cost of the legislation were covered up and, and there were lot, people were lied to. Uh, anyway, it came to me as a shock to realize the president was really for this legislation all along. And it seemed to me that one, that one could have passed a much more targeted, a much more limited bill that would have dealt much better with the legitimate need uh, for the legislation without having this gold-plated, uh, enormously expensive piece of legislation that covers everybody, including millionaires. So you thought that he was doing with the Medicare bill what he is now being accused of doing with his environmental program. He proposed a, a whole new approach to uh, to cutting down on a dependency on oil and then just admitted that he's also contradicted that by cutting back on any opportunity for government support of that kind of thing. Well, that sounds like a good parallel. I hadn't thought of that. But uh, it's just, you know, anyway, the the point is that that was the moment in time and you can check the record. I mean, my columns uh, are, are available on the web anywhere somebody wants to look for them. And for the first three years of the administration, I was almost universally positive towards almost everything they tried to do. But after that, I, I really started to look much more critically at everything they did. And I just uh, I, I become increasingly negative. And finally, I decided that I needed to explain my thinking uh, in a book uh, because I was hearing a lot of other conservatives say these things, but they were saying them below the radar screen, you know, cocktail party chit-chat and things like that. And I thought it needed to be aired publicly. In fact, uh, you, you're reading it on blogs, but you, you can't well, read but your book, but, yeah. but your book is, in, is getting you into trouble. When President Reagan took office in 1981, the national debt stood at $995 billion. Twelve years later, 
By the end of George H.W. Bush's presidency, it had exploded to $4 trillion. And in 2000, after eight years of the Clinton administration, Democrat, <coughs> there was a surplus of $236 billion. So are conservatives like you now rethinking <coughs> Clinton's economic policies? Yeah, I think so. I, I have a whole chapter in the book in which I discuss uh, the, the, the whole the Clinton legacy, and I, I state quite flatly and, and clearly in the book that at least on the budget, there is just a, no ambiguity between Bush and Clinton. Clinton was clearly and unambiguously better. Uh, now, there's obviously other issues, but uh, but on that one issue, uh, Clinton cut spending. He he vetoed legislation that because it spent too much. Uh, he 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 tried to uh, to control uh, pork barrel spending and things of that sort, and uh, and you know I mean if I had a choice you know uh, of voting for Bush or Clinton on that one issue I'd I'd ca- personally cast my vote for Bill Clinton. Not only did Bush have a surplus when he came into <laughs> office, but the ten-year forecast for the surplus stood at five point mm-hmm. six trillion dollars. Yeah. So did he start changing things immediately? You mean Bush? Yeah. Yeah, I did a calculation the other day. I looked up, uh, on, and anybody can find this on the Treasury Department website, there's a document that's published annually called the Financial Report of the United States Government that calculates the total indebtedness, including not just the Treasury bonds and things that we call the national debt, but all of the future obligations for things like Medicare and Medicaid and things like that. And on, on the basis of those official documents, uh, George W. Bush has increased the indebtedness of the United States by $20 trillion during the first four years of his presidency. And uh, a good chunk of that is the Medicare drug benefit, but there's a lot of other stuff too. And I, I just think that's appalling. And the 2004 deficit reached $415 billion, mm-hmm. which is a record. And But that isn't even the real size because... Uh, it was later learned that uh, the administration shifted $150 billion from the Social Security Trust to make it look smaller. Well, they play a lot of budgetary But games. that's not new. That goes no. back, I guess, to Lyndon Johnson, at least. Yeah, yeah. The, but, uh, but, uh, but they play a lot of gimmick. They do a lot of gimmicky stuff that is even appalling by comparisons to, to previous administrations, which have always done gimmicky things. For example, one of the things the administration does routinely is they'll put forward a budget in January <clears throat> that leaves out a lot of things that they know they're going to have to spend money on, such as, for example, the, the Iraq operation. And then later on, they will ask Congress for what's called a supplemental appropriation to, to cover these costs. And then they will go around and claim, oh, but our budget requests were very modest. You know, we, we, we showed, you know, spending declining. And then they would add Back money back through the back door, and this is just you know transparently phony. And that's what led Paul O'Neill to leave, among we'll, other things. We will uh, follow up on that after we take a little break. My guest is Bruce Bartlett, who was uh, in the 1980s executive director of the Joint Economic Committee of Congress. Later worked in the Reagan White House and the first Bush Treasury Department. He has a nationally syndicated newspaper column. And his work has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Fortune, Commentary, and other national publications. His latest book, Imposter, How George W. Bush Bankrupted America and Betrayed the Reagan Legacy, is published by Doubleday. We will continue after this. We're back with Bruce Bartlett, 
who is the author of Reaganomics, which was named one of the Wall Street Journal's best business books of the year in 1981. His latest imposter, How George W. Bush Bankrupted America and Betrayed Reagan, the Reagan Legacy, is published by Doubleday. And the Wall Street Journal is not as happy with this book as it was with Reaganomics. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. They have a review in this morning's paper. Well, they they liked the book partly and then disagreed with you on tax policies. They want to see uh, the the tax cuts made permanent? Well, basically the problem with the journal is that they just have never, ever seen a tax cut that they didn't like. And, uh, and, and that's a perfectly respectable position in Republican circles. I just think that, you know, you do at some point reach the point of diminishing returns – and you should know that, uh, uh, I don't know if sure if it's in my bio there, but I mean, I went to work for Jack Kemp back in 1977, and I drafted the Kemp-Roth bill, which formed the basis of the Reagan tax cut in 1981. So I have a long history of supporting tax cuts, but what I was always in favor of was moving ultimately towards a reformed tax system with low tax rates. Ideally, I would like to see a flat rate tax system. And I just don't, and I think if President Bush had come into office with a vision of how he wanted the tax system ultimately to look, uh, an awful lot could have been accomplished. But instead, what, what we've gotten a lot of are really the tax equivalent of pork barrel spending. That is, tax gimmicky things in the tax code that do not do anything to increase growth or efficiency or fairness. They're just, they're just pure giveaways. And that's where I kind of disagree with my my friends at the Journal, uh, because I think that, well, in the 1980s, for example, we had this theory called the Star of the Beast theory, which was, okay, let's just take away the government's allowance, and they will be forced to balance down by cutting spending. Uh, this is that's the, the Grover Norquist idea. Uh, among others, yes. Uh, Milton Friedman was really the one who kind of pioneered that, the thinking about that. But the thing is that there's no evidence that this works. I mean, we've had tax cuts, big tax cuts over the last five years and increases in spending at the same time. So whatever the theory might have worked at one time, but it's clearly not working now, yet a lot of people still feel like the way to control spending is to cut taxes even more. And I just think we've gone past the point of diminishing returns, especially given my, my forecast or my, uh, my expectation that the next major tax movement in this country is going to have to be to raise revenues, not cut them more. Uh, although I'm assuming that you're calling for something a little more equitable than uh, taxing just the poor and the middle classes. Uh, well, at this point, I'm just saying we need the revenue. You know, how we get it is another matter. I do discuss in the book uh, the idea that maybe the time has come for us to think about a value-added tax, which every country in Europe has. And uh, uh, because it, it does raise a lot of revenue and a lot of people have concerns about it on both the left and the right, and that's fine. I'm just trying to start a debate, a discussion, uh, because I think the reasons why the Europeans adopted the, the, the VAT, and, and it was put imposed mainly by socialist countries, uh, con uh, governments of the left, uh, have a validity for us, and we're the only major country left that doesn't have one. You note that much of the criticism for Bush's economic policies were assigned to some key personnel, Paul O'Neill, mm -hmm. Larry Lindsay, Stephen Friedman, and John D. Iulio, to name a few. Um, and, and the Wall Street Journal does agree with you on that. They said much of the criticism one heard about the quality of Bush's economic team was often misdirected 
the Bush administration hasn't always had the strongest or best coordinated team of economic advisors, to put it mildly. Yeah, the, one of the, the the main chapters in the book that I hope people will read has to do with the policy development process in this administration. And this ports business is a classic example of this. It's quite clear that the, pro, the interagency process, the cooperation between the departments that study these issues before they ever reach the president is just completely broken down. And yet this ports a scandal that we're dealing with today is actually quite typical of the way the administration does all kinds of policies and why I think they've made so many mistakes. Well, many people uh, on both sides of this argument, some people think <clears throat> that uh, that uh, giving the Dubai company uh, access to our ports might be perfectly fine, but many were shocked that the president didn't even know about it until way after the decision had been made. And, and then he immediately get... announced his support for it and vowed to, to veto any legislation against it as if he had been in the loop all along. That, that's, that's very typical of Bush's uh, behavior. And, and again, I think it's a source of problems. How much of the, the deficit can be linked directly to 9-11? Certainly a, a chunk of it can, depending on whether you count Iraq as part of the 9-11 legacy or not. But even if you net out all the increases in spending for defense and homeland security, there's still been a huge increase in spending uh, for just across the board for education, for health, uh, for everything the government does. Uh, and, and are those uh, bad things? Well, I think that... Sometimes you have to do what you have to do, but I think in many cases a lot of money has been wastefully spent on, on things that, that did no good for the American people and no good for the Republican Party. It was just complete wasted money. Like the bridges to nowhere oh, in Alaska. Alaska turns out to have a really good deal. There's no there's no uh, state income tax. Income tax. Mm -hmm. uh, they, <laughs> they get more money back from the United mm -hmm. States than they send us, and they also get royalties on all the oil that's drilled in the state. I mean, a good example, we all know about this bridge to nowhere that was going to cost a couple of hundred million dollars to build a bridge to a, a, an island where something like 50 people live. And when when they were confronted by the embarrassment of this, the Congress took back the project, but gave the same identical amount of money to the state of Alaska to use on any transportation project they feel like. And if they want to go ahead and build the bridge with state money, they can now do it, and the federal government will, in effect, pay for it. So it's this kind of gimmicky stuff that, that, that just appalls me. My guest is Bruce Bartlett, who was, until just recently, with the think tank, the National Center for Policy Analysis, fired because of the book we are discussing, Imposter, How George W. Bush Bankrupted America and Betrayed the Reagan Legacy, published by Doubleday. This is WNYC 93.9 AMA 20. We're online at WNYC.org. Much of the ill-conceived policies, as you described them, were actually brainstormed outside the Treasury Department. So who's coming up with these ideas? You know, that's actually an excellent question. Part of the reason I wrote the book was to try to figure out for myself exactly where George W. Bush gets his ideas from because he's clearly not getting them from the news. Uh, he, he, By self-admission, he doesn't read newspapers. He doesn't have any intellectual guidance uh, around him. Uh, uh, it's it, They seem to come to him uh, from a kind of immaculate conception that, that, like on this ports thing, he's just 
absolutely determined and certain to to 100% degree that that this is absolutely the right thing to do on the basis of of, of almost no information uh, because he only learned about it at the same time the rest of us did but you 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 write here bush's economists were being used more for partisan political purposes than historically has been the case, cranking out numbers and spinning them in ways that would have been unthinkable in earlier administrations. Now, why would respected economists be willing to do that? Well, the problem is, of course, that that they're not. Uh, I mean, there's been a serious deterioration in the quality of Bush's economic advisors, whom I know the most about, uh, over time, and it's well known that they're, they've had enormous difficulty over the last couple of years in attracting high-quality people for high-level appointments at places like the Treasury and the Council of Economic Advisors, precisely because nobody wants to be treated uh, like an errand boy. Larry Lindsay was fired, wasn't he, because he gave a more accurate assessment about how much the war in Iraq would actually cost? Well, that's what they said he was fired for, but I can't believe that that was the real reason. I think that was like some superficial reason. I, I to this day, I don't know why Larry was fired, or certainly not. I certainly don't know why he was fired at the, the same day that Paul O'Neill was fired, because the two clearly had nothing whatsoever to do with each other in terms of whatever sins they may have committed. Uh, and I do think that Paul O'Neill and Larry were treated very, very badly. I don't know why the president couldn't have just called Larry in and said, you know, things are not working out. Why don't you just announce that you're leaving on your own and we'll have a nice ceremony and blah, blah, blah. Instead, they announced it to the media and they didn't even tell the guy and he finds out the hard way. What were your feelings about the appointment of Ben Bernanke to head the Federal Reserve? Almost everybody thinks that was a good idea. Yeah, I think Ben is, is one of the few bright spots, but... Uh, uh, you know, he, he's not been tested by fire yet. He's, uh, he's an academic economist, and uh, it's going to take a long time before he learns how to be a practicing central banker. And, uh, and I, I'm hopeful that, that there will not be any crises that he has to deal with anytime soon, but I think the, jury, the point is the jury's still out on that. Well, Alan Greenspan came under fire in the last years for defending policies mm -hmm. that he would have opposed when Bill Clinton was president. Well, Alan uh, presumably is writing his memoirs and will explain himself uh, as, as time goes by. But, but were uh, you surprised uh, about, by the about-face? Because many people credited him <clears throat> with uh, being one of the important uh, advisors to Clinton mm -hmm. about lowering the deficit. Yeah. Well, I, w I would prefer to evaluate Alan Greenspan purely on the basis of what he actually had control over, which is monetary policy. And as I say, I think in the book, I don't remember, uh, he, on average, he's done a pretty good job. I mean, the last uh, 20 years when he was uh, the chairman were a lot better than the 20 years before that. We've, inflation has come down very dramatically. Interest rates have come down dramatically. So I, I, I think that whatever else, you know, Mr. Greenspan did, he did do an awfully good job in that area. And uh, whether he gave the right political advice at a given moment in time, you know, I, I'll let history judge that. I want to go back to Congress because I'm not sure you really answered my question about why you don't place more blame on Congress. The, the, what I got out of your answer was, well, you know, they have uh, they have control of both houses, and what else can you expect from them? I guess having worked in the Congress, uh, my view is that they're like they're like kindergarten children, you know, and the and the teacher has to be there to kind of round them up and make sure that they don't all run off in their own direction. 
Each member of Congress represents a very narrow constituency, a particular state, a particular uh, district, and and by definition, they they're not capable of looking at the national interest. They have to look at things with, you know, myopically, and it's the president's responsibility, constitutionally, to look at the big picture, to look at the national interest, and say, this pork barrel project may be great for your district, but it's bad for the country. We really need to be building things over in this other area, and so I think the ultimate responsibility for the hemorrhaging of of the budget uh, really just has to belong to the president and uh, and i I think one of the reasons why we did so well at budgetarily during the Clinton years was because we had gridlock, which I'm very, very much in favor of. Each party keeps a check on the other one, you know when you look over the conservative blogs, what are you finding now that uh, there are many people who share your feelings about the situation? Yeah, I, I, I've been pleasantly surprised uh, by the positive response I've gotten. Uh, the few negative things I've gotten mostly involve my being an opportunist and, uh, you know, just trying to sell books by trashing the president and that sort of thing. But the book's only been for sale, you know, for three days. And so none of the people who have criticized me could possibly have read the book. But that's interesting. I mean, you, you lost your job because you wrote this book, mm-hmm. and you knew that you were going to get many people angry by writing it. Is that what opportunists do? Well, uh, they certainly... An opportunist might have been if you had said, I'm becoming a Democrat because of this and I want to sell books. Well, look, the the advance I got was about equal to the salary, one year's salary that I lost by writing the book. So it wasn't a very wise decision if I was just being an opportunist. And people should know. I mean, I haven't switched sides. I'm still a Republican. and, uh, And I wrote this book for, principally, other Republicans to... Tell them, look, we we need to straighten this mess out. In in 2008, we're going to have to pick a new nominee for our party, and and now's the time to have a debate. So, who do you think would be a good nominee for the party? Because I, I don't see anybody there in Congress anyway, mm-hmm. or any governor who would probably would go along with you on most of this. Well, on his good days, uh, I like John McCain. Uh, he has. He's said, a bit old for the presidency, isn't well, he? Well, I think I think he could win if he were willing to do this to tell the American people, if I'm elected, I will serve one term and one term only. I think that would be a very attractive campaign slogan. Mm-hmm. So John McCain would be your candidate. You don't see anybody well, else in in the offing. Well, I'm hopeful that someone will come forward. Uh, because I do think the Democrats are going to have a very strong candidate in the uh, junior senator from this state. There is uh, concern among the Democrats that they're going to wind up having to bite the bullet when they do wind up in the White House, whether it's this election or the next one, and pull back on all of the, the things that have led to this uh, incredible deficit. Uh, are it <laughs> would it be in the best interest to not win the presidency? Well, the problem is you don't know when the chickens are going to come home to roost, and they may come during the the watch of the next president, or maybe the one after that. All I know is that we cannot continue on the trend that we're on. Are you concerned about uh, the the amount of treasury bond notes that the Chinese are buying? I know in the past there was alarm when the Japanese did it and people in other parts of the world did it and the country didn't fall as a result. Mm-hmm. But the Chinese is the Chinese are involved in something of a Cold War small c, small w with the United States right now. Well, I'm not worried, as some people are, that the Chinese are going to suddenly dump all their bonds because then they would take huge capital losses. 
what I am a little concerned about is that they may is that the Treasury may be successful in getting them to revalue their currency, which means they would no longer have any reason to buy any more bonds in the future, which could raise interest rates. In our case, the the value of the dollar is declining considerably while interest rates are going up. Does is that good for the country? No, it's it's bad for the country. I mean, we we want a strong dollar and low interest rates. Uh, but again, the, uh, we're on a trend that cannot continue. The Federal Reserve is tightening monetary policy, but at the same time, indicators such as the dollar and the price of gold and things like that are signaling future inflation, which means the Fed's going to have to tighten more, and that could lead to a recession. So where do you go from here after you finish the book tour? Well, uh, the book tour has only just gotten started, so I expect to be pretty busy with that for the next few months. And uh, I've got another couple of books in mind, and I'll uh, hopefully uh, be able to get by doing that for a while. And maybe a think tank will call. Maybe. And maybe the price of oil will go down. (laughs) And maybe pigs will learn how to fly. (laughs) Bruce Bartlett's book is called Imposter, How George W. Bush Bankrupted America and Betrayed the Reagan Legacy. It is published by Doubleday. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's podcast of the Leonard Lopate Show from WNYC New York Public Radio. This was just one of the show's segments. You can hear everything we do on demand at WNYC.org. Check out our other podcasts at WNYC.org or on iTunes. This podcast is made possible by WNYC and its listeners. Please help support this free service by becoming a member at WNYC.org. And thanks.